Mac Power Users, Episode 109, Speeding Up Your Mac. Well, hey, everybody. It's David Sparks back with Katie Floyd. Hello, Katie. Hey, David. We're going to go to the Mac this time. We've been talking a lot about the iOS devices lately. I wanted to take a show and just talk about ways to speed up your Mac. And, Who doesn't uh, this, like that? Yeah, exactly. You know, the, the Macs keep getting faster and the hard drives and all the technologies are increasing, but it still seems like they can slow down on you. And there's several steps you can take to avoid that. So the idea of this show is once you get through it with us, you're going to be able to uh, get the cruft out of your system and tighten up the spokes and get that thing rolling again. Yeah. And, you know, maybe if you're not quite ready for a brand new computer like those fancy new iMacs or those fancy new Mac minis that Apple just released not all that long ago or are coming out in November and December, maybe we can talk about some upgrades that'll that'll tide you over for a while. Is there a name for the phenomena where you get a new computer and it seems like it's just wicked fast and like six months later, you don't notice the speed increase anymore. And then, you know, a year later, it feels like it's slow. I don't think it's six months later or a year later per se. I think it's whenever the new models come out and there's definitely a name for that. Well, no, it's like when I was on the PC and, and I really don't go on the show to trash PCs cause I know that doesn't make people happy and I get it, but I, I know that the computers would get actually slower and I haven't been on a PC for a long time, so I'm sure they're better now, but you know, you'd get all the problems and the cruft and you'd have to just nuke and pave it like every six months to keep it running. Uh, But that's generally not the problem on the Mac, but it it does seem to me like they get slower or maybe you just don't notice the speed as much. You get used to it. Well, well, no, the the Macs certainly aren't as as bad as the PCs were about that. But, uh, you know, I just had an instance and we'll talk about a little bit later in the show where I had to do a total nuke and pave of, of my dad's computer. And the difference was just night and day. Yeah. Well, see, there you go. So it happens everywhere. All right. Well, I think the first place to start is maintenance. Okay. All right. So where do we go? Well, the first thing I like to do, and I got to borrow a phrase from Dave Hamilton because I saw a presentation that he did years and years ago at Macworld about running your Mac lean, clean, and mean. And I, I really took that to heart. And it's clean the cruft out of your Mac. That's what I call it. Or maybe I, I stole that phrase from him. I don't know. But I used to think back in the day of Mac OS 7, 8, 9 that, you know, it was really cool the more extensions you could get to run across your screen at startup. And, um, you know, I had Oscar the Grouch coming out of my trash can. Now, that was pretty cool. And yeah. all of these little hacksies and add-ons and all of this other stuff. And... The I like to think the more mature that I've gotten, uh, the more I realized I just don't need all that junk. And so not only do I like to just run my Mac lean and clean from a, an applications and a utilities perspective, but there's a lot of stuff that can build up even just over years and years of, of using your Mac. And, and I like to get rid of that. Yeah, and that's going to be really a theme throughout this episode that, you know, that's is the stuff that adds up and causes the trouble. And I think we should also shout out to Dave Hamilton, since we mentioned him. He has an excellent podcast called The Mac Geek Gab. And uh, I highly recommend it if you're interested in figuring out, you know, techie things with your Mac. Uh, go check it out. Yeah, John and Dave really dive deep on, on geeky stuff. And I've, I, it's always on my playlist. And I, I learn things from them very regularly. So, 
Um, but one of the things is, and, and this is so simple, and it really does help, just restart your computer every now and then. I yeah, don't know why a, there's such a strong aversion to that. Yeah, it's a funny thing where people have these, uh, they run a task where it shows how long the uptime is, you know, like using Geek Tool. That's one of the things on your, you put on your desktop. I guess it's a Unix command or something that tells you your current uptime and people want to say, hey, look, I've been running my computer for 60 days or whatever. And I don't understand why they do that. Uh, I don't think you need to restart your computer every time you use it. I certainly don't restart my laptop every time I shut it down. I know people that do that. Uh, but, but like once a week or so, I will just shut it down and start it up again. Yeah, absolutely. How about, how about you? How often do you restart your computer? It, it depends. Probably more than once a week. Definitely at least once a week. Probably three times a week, four times a week. Depends. I'm, I mean, I do it when I get an update or something that requires it, and then when I remember to do it. And and honestly, that really is probably no more than once a week. Now, my Mac Mini, on the other hand, which pretty much runs as a home server, that gets restarted because it's such a pain. I got to go find the Bluetooth keyboard and log in and do all that other stuff. That gets restarted whenever there's a software update or, you know, maybe once a month whenever I'm having, you know, I, I think about it. Oh, yeah, I haven't restarted that in a while. I need to. Yeah, it's funny how many computer problems you can solve by just restarting it. And uh, it's one of the things often overlooked. If you're troubleshooting for someone and tell them to restart it and it just works, it's such a it's such a relief when you're trying to help somebody that, you know, that takes care of it. Uh, but, you know, in addition to just restarting the computer, you also need to keep track of your resources that you're using on your computer. And I think one of the most important in terms of keeping the machine running fast is your storage. Uh, and, you know, in these, this day and age, it's an interesting conversation because when we first started talking about hard drives, it was a big deal and hard drives were expensive and you had to, you know, get limited space. I remember the first drive I ever, hard drive I ever bought was actually for an Atari ST computer and I got it used from somebody and I, I want to say it was either 10 megabytes or 20 I remember it vividly. It was called a super drive and I spent hundreds of dollars on it. And it was in this case that looked like, you know, it was like, it looked like a world war two kind of case that you would put something really big and heavy in and it had these fans in it. And you'd start it up. Um, and you know, so we've gone a long way. Now we're getting terabytes on laptop drives, but at the same time, we're in this big transition to the SSD age where solid state drives are really the thing of the future. And if you've ever used one, you know why they're just so fast and quiet and they don't, you know, if you drop the computer, you know, if you bump it, it's not going to throw off the head and scratch the drive and all the things that we don't like about traditional drives. However, uh, that causes a problem because suddenly again, we have a storage issue. Yeah. And so there are a couple of things. Number one, you should never be running your Mac right up to the limit anyway, because your Mac needs a certain amount of free space. And I think the general rule of thumb is about 10 to 20% free at an absolute minimum, just so your Mac can, and, and that percentage is going to reduce the larger the hard drive is, of course. But your Mac needs to be able to store cache files. Your Mac needs to be able to store its sleep image. So you need to be running with several gigs of free space anyway. But again, hard drive space really becomes a premium when you've got, you know, I've only got a 256 hard drive in this MacBook Air and in my Mac Mini, and we'll talk about that a little bit later, I actually put a 128 uh, SSD drive and that I upgraded it recently. Thought about putting in a 60 gigabyte drive, but I found a 128 on sale. So 
went with that. Um, one of my favorite applications, and full disclosure, they've been a sponsor of the show in the past, but they were sponsored because they're one of our favorite applications, is is Daisy Disk, which just scans your hard drive and and shows you uh, exactly what is using your free space, where it is, and you can make the decision then whether or not to get rid of it. You know, there are other applications that that do things like this. Daisy Disk is just the one that that I is I personally prefer. Well, Daisy Disk does it with Panache. That's why. It's just, it's a really nice app. It makes it easy to find it. It makes it easy to delete it. And uh, it's just a really attractive app, which us Mac users like those kinds of things. Um, yeah, so whatever application you use, uh, you want to occasionally go through. And it, it depends on the computer. For instance, my I have a big hard drive, big SSD drive on my laptop. It's 500. And then whereas on my, my iMac, I only have a 256. And I am constantly running Daisy Disk on my iMac to constantly monitor that. Whereas on the laptop, I don't really pay that much attention to it because I'm way, way below. And I was thinking about what you said earlier about 10 versus 20%. I know back in the day when we were buying 20 megabyte hard drives that that was a big deal because, you know, you wanted to spool out memory or whatever uses the computer needed for that additional hard drive space. I've got to believe the percentage is smaller now. But I think there's a bigger problem in that the media files we deal with are just so much bigger now. And if you don't keep 20% free, you'll fill that 20% up without even realizing it very quickly. If you do any kind of media intensive stuff or if someone you're sharing a folder with in Dropbox decides to drop a bunch of videos in there for some work project, you know, you'll suddenly find you're out of space and you, know, you don't want to get there. And one of the other things that I like to do is, in addition to removing all of the unused files on my Mac, I'm I, and I've always been this way about my iOS devices, and I realized if I'm this way about my iOS devices, why am I not this way about my Mac? I don't live with a lot of uh, applications on my Mac that I'm not using, and I have a tendency, I have to be very careful about this, because you know I get a lot of applications to review, I have people wanting me to take a look at applications. If it's not something that I'm regularly using as part of my workflow, I, I'm getting it out of here. So I'm I'm removing a lot of these unused applications. That's an interesting thing. You know, you can get yourself into trouble doing that as well. Um, when you start removing applications, if there's support files that are shared by other uh, computers, that was really much more of a problem in the past than it is now. And the applications aren't that big. I, I'm with you. I mean, I think using fewer apps is better than using lots of apps because then you tend to get better at the few you're using and you're more productive and you don't spend your time fiddling. But uh, I don't really spend that much time going through and, and cleaning out old apps. Occasionally I may go do it, but for the most part, I just keep them there. Well, there are a couple of tools you can use. Uh, one is, um, is apps app or even still around? There's, there's one called app delete that is still around and still being used. But I don't know uh, if AppZapper's been updated in a while. AppZapper. Um, and then Hazel has a component that will will try to collect all of the unused bits of an application and and move them to the trash along with it. But just deleting the app from the application folder, and this has been a chronic problem um, with the Mac because app, applications typically don't come with uninstaller files. Is just removing an application usually doesn't remove all of the stuff in the in the user folders or in the system level folders. Yeah, AppZapper's still there. Wonder when the last time it was updated. Well, I was just looking. It said it's got a copyright 2012 on the bottom of their website, but it says it works for Mac OS 10.6.2 or later. Which yeah, makes me wonder. I'm thinking that hasn't been updated. Uh, I think yeah. App Delete is one that's been updated more frequently. Yeah, and the other one I like to use for removing apps is uh, Hazel. 
my beloved Hazel. She does everything for you. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's just, a, once again, that's an example of, of one app wearing multiple hats. But Hazel, we did a whole show on Hazel, is a great application for uh, automating your Mac. But it also has a built-in uh, feature to, to clear out the detritus when you when you delete an app. In fact, it, it just is constantly aware. And when you delete an app, then it pops up a dialog box that says, hey, do you want to get rid of these support files too? All right. Well, let's see. Um, clean up your desktop. Do you run with a lot of junk in your desktop? No, I don't. But the the desktop, and I'm I'm going to explain this poorly, and I'm sure we'll have people write in and explain this better than me. The desktop is not just a folder. So actually having a lot of things on your desktop is going to slow down your everyday performance of your Mac. Even if you just throw a folder on your desktop and throw everything in that folder that says stuff to file later, which please don't, but okay, whatever. Um, it's it's going to help speed up your Mac more than just having the stuff on your desktop. But eh, Do you know that tip. for a fact? I because do know I, that for a fact. All That's right, not a large tale. I've heard so much contrary um, testimony I'm on totally that. I'm totally just making this up. Go ahead. <laughs> I just heard so many people say it's not, and and I've never really dug to the bottom of that problem. Uh, I'm sure I'm sure they'll write in and tell us. But the um, but clean up your desktop because it annoys me. <laughs> okay, well we don't want Katie upset. <laughs> we can't have that. Mm. I, I use the desktop uh, when I'm in the middle of a big project. I'll put stuff over there, uh, even just like little screenshots or whatever when I'm building a keynote file. But I always clean it up right right away afterwards. I I don't like to have it lingering there. Agreed. Absolutely. And that's yeah. another good use for Hazel. You can build a Hazel rule to automatically file those things for you or send them somewhere that you, you know, if it's a movie file, you can have it send it straight into iTunes or stick it in a folder for you. Yeah. And one of the most underutilized tools um, that comes with the Mac, I think, is Activity Monitor. You know, I don't know if there's enough stuff in Activity Monitor to warrant doing a whole show on Activity Monitor, but... Maybe we should look into that because there is such a wealth of information in Activity Monitor that will tell you what's going on with your Mac and what's happening behind the scenes. And if you're seeing things get bogged down, Activity Monitor will really give you a clue of, did you even know that file was open? Did you even know that that, that application is talking to the network in the background? Did you even know that this this task is taking up this percentage of your system resources? And sometimes it'll surprise you what's going on. Okay, so let's back up a little bit and talk about where do you find Activity Monitor. All right, Activity Monitor is uh, in the Applications folder, in the Utilities folder. So the Utilities folder, which is inside the Applications folder, I should say. Yeah, that always gets people because you think it would be just in the Applications folder, but there's a separate subfolder in there called Utility where Apple puts a lot of useful little tools like the Apple Script Editor, which is a great thing for automating your Mac, is in there. It's not just in the root directory. So if you if you don't know where to look for it, you'll look and say, oh, well, I don't have it. No, it's there. You just got to dig a little bit. And so when you open the activity monitor, it, it it's the system diagnostic for your Mac, really. It shows what's going on in memory. It shows what apps are running, what types of apps they are, you know, whether they're 64-bit or 32-bit. Uh, like, for instance, I'm looking at it right now, and I see I have a menu application that is not 64-bit. I'm surprised. Um, Anyway, so it's a great way to look. And when things do slow down, it will tell you what's using the most of your processor. And it's remarkable. Sometimes you're, you'll hear the fan spinning on your computer and things just don't seem to be working right. And if you open Activity Monitor, you'll see some app that you're not even using right now 
is running, you know, 80% of your processors. Uh, quite often it could be, for instance, Safari running, you know, getting stuck in a flash animation or, or I find Apple mill once in a while starts winding up on me that way. And, you know, so you can very quickly find, you know, who the troublemaker is, and then you can force quit that app and you'll see the fans spin down and, you know, the, the CPU return to normal and, you know, everything's great. In fact, that's the time that I always say, okay, well, when's the last time I restarted my Mac? Maybe it's time to do that now. Um, and the other thing that, that you can find out in Activity Monitor is just what's running on your Mac. And you may be surprised what you have running in the background on your Mac, because maybe you've got things that are starting up on your Mac that you didn't even realize are are starting up without you even knowing it. And you can find that by also going into your user account and looking at your startup items under system preferences. Under your user account, there's a little tab for startup items, but Activity Monitor will tell you actually what's running. Yeah. And, and there's, to the best of my knowledge, on a on a default install of Mac OS X, there is nothing that has to run at startup. Now, you may have added something. You may end up having a certain driver, or you may end up having a certain helper, or you may end up having a menu bar, or something like that that, that added itself to the startup items. Like, yeah, you know, I've got several in mind. I've got too many in mind, really. But, you know, I've got Dropbox. I've got um, uh, Fantastical. You know, I've got a slew of things in my startup items. But if, if you're finding things are getting slowed down, you know, wipe that out and start from scratch and, and see, okay, well, what can I live without and what do I need in there and, and what's causing me trouble? You know, maybe you've got a developer who's got a bug in one of their processes and it's it's giving you a problem. Yeah, and that's another way to clean up your, your Mac. That's something that can start loading up a, a lot of additional memory uh, load if you're putting a bunch of stuff in there and it's real active. Uh, you can also access that in the preferences pane in the users menu. And so if you go into preferences and show all and users and groups and then select yourself in the login items, and then you'll see a bunch of them there. And that one's really misleading because when you look at it, it you see the, the apps listed and then there's a checkbox next to it. And it's usually unchecked because it's actually a hide checkbox. It's not a running checkbox. And if you don't pay real close attention, you say, oh, well, it's not checked. I, I've got a bunch in there, but most of them aren't running. Well, actually, they're all running. The only way you can get rid of one is to uh, select it and hit the, the minus sign at the bottom. Right. And most of what's running in my login items are actually menu bar items, which brings me to my next topic of, do you really need all that stuff running in your menu bar? Yeah, exactly. Mine's crazy. I Every time I look at a screencast I produce, I look at all the menu bar items I've got running across the top, and I'm embarrassed. But I'm always trying stuff out, and I forget to get rid of them. Well, you've got Bartender running, right? Uh, you know, I, I have it. I bought the license, and sometimes I have it running, and sometimes I don't. When I rebuilt my Mac, I forgot to install it. I just put it in the other day again, which is great. So Bartender's uh, a menu bar app that is now in beta. It's not... It's not out officially yet, although you can buy it. I think I paid $15 for it. And uh, Bartender is a menu bar app that holds other menu bar apps. So if you've got a bunch of them up there, you can drop it in there, especially if you're like on an 11-inch MacBook Air and you you know your menu bar uh, has premium for your space. It's a great application to have there because sometimes you'll get applications where their menu items overlap the menu bar. And the way OS X operates is in that case, it just covers up the menu bar items. So if you really need to get to something, you're in trouble. 
Uh, that happens to me once in a while when I'm screencasting and I've got the the record icon for a screen a screen flow. It's underneath the menu item, and I want to turn it off. Well, there's actually a keyboard combination, but it's really kind of a pain. I I always enjoy when you screencast because I get to see what's in your menu bar. Oh, what's David using now? Yeah, I'm shutting that down now. It's you're going to have to ask me because I'm I'm putting it all in Bartender. Well, I guess that's yes. that's why we listen to the podcast, right? Well, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. All right. But it is it is something that can stand cleaning when you go through there. And I think the Mac App Store has made this worse for me because there's all these $2 apps in there that do one little thing well and I end up buying them for a limited time. I need them on a special project I'm working in, and then I just forget to turn them off in the login items. And in that case, I uh I have an exploding menu bar. So I had an issue recently on a computer that I was troubleshooting, and the problem was with fonts. And that's not usually something you think of needing to have to clean out. Have you ever had font corruption? You know, I used to have that problem a lot, and I haven't had it in years now. But I think in the older versions of OS X, it was more of an issue. So you, know, you had it recently? It wasn't even something that I I thought of. And I think it, was, it took a lot of Google food to figure out that this was my problem. But the issue was after it, it manifested itself in the Office application. So it was a PowerPoint and Word. And I knew that there was text on a specific page, but it was just showing up as white. But I knew that there was text there because I could highlight it and copy it and paste it into another application. But the fonts just weren't showing up at all. And then this was... That was one symptom, but then there were other symptoms that I couldn't quite put my finger on. And then I, I put it all together of, well, this is obviously a font issue in, in Word. And then when I backtracked it, I thought, well, some of the other issues I'm having also make sense to be font issues. So Apple includes a, a pretty cool tool. You know, you used to have to go out and buy all these third-party tools for managing your font. But Apple includes a pretty cool tool in Fontbook, which can also be found. Is it is it also in that utilities folder or is it in the application? I, I think, think it's, it's in the utilities. utilities. Yeah. yeah, which is also in that utilities folder that you can use to go through. And it, will, it did a scan um, and it found that I had multiple versions of the same font installed, which can create an issue. And I was able to deactivate or remove them. And then it also found some instances where I guess the fonts failed to validate which may have meant that they were corrupt fonts. So in every case, I had the fonts that were giving me trouble. I ended up having multiple versions of them on my operating system. So I was able to, you know, first I disabled, and then when I found everything was working, a couple of weeks later I went back in and removed all of the fonts that I had previously disabled, and I haven't had any issue since. But Yeah, there be dragons there, though. Um, yeah. You have to be careful when you go through and start deleting fonts. If they're system fonts, you can get yourself into a bunch of trouble. And fixing that um, cascades. It can lead to you having to nuke and pave your computer because there's one simple system font and getting that out of Apple and getting it reinstalled in your system, it may be easier to reinstall the computer entirely. Uh, so just be careful what you remove. They do allow you to break them up in font book between user fonts and computer fonts. And if it's something you've installed, you know, go nuts. But if it's something that is built in, do a little bit of a Google search before you start taking them out. Oh yeah. I was very careful. Any font that I disabled or blew away, I made sure was in the, in the user font category and not the system font. 
Um, but, but yeah, that was it. I wonder if I've just been lucky or if that is less of a problem than it used to be. I've never run across it before, but I mention it because it, it was an issue. And I, th- I think it was a Microsoft created issue, if I can blame it on them, because it it started with a, a reinstall of Microsoft Office. Well, Microsoft Office installs a lot of fonts. Um, that's I think that's the reason it used to be documented. That was the reason why it took so long to boot up. I don't know if that's true still. but And I understand why they do it, because they want to have compatible fonts with the uh, computer, with the Windows computer. You know, the whole idea of Microsoft is that the Microsoft Office is that you'll have absolute compatibility between the Mac and the PC, which is a good thing, but it requires them to install all these fonts that they use on the PC side. Well, I want to talk more about just some general maintenance um, of your Mac since we've gotten, we spent some time now going over some specific details, but before we do, you want to take a quick sponsor break? Yeah, in fact, we've got a great sponsor to talk about in light of the recent announcements from Apple. That's right. Our first sponsor is Gazelle.com. And yeah, Gazelle almost makes it too easy to sell your old iPad, your old iPhone, even your old Macs. Because right before the the iPad mini event, I must admit, I went on Gazelle.com and um, I I just thought, you know, I'm I'm just going to go get a quote. I'm just going to go see what this... This third generation iPod is uh, iPad is worth, um, and I I got my offer and it was pretty darn good. And I locked that offer in for thirty days, and now I'm just sitting here with this Gazelle offer and thirty days to sit here and go, do I really want to upgrade to that fourth gen iPad? Do I really want to do it? Because um, I just sent Gazelle my iPhone, my iPhone four. And uh, it, the the process was absolutely painless. I went to the Gazelle website. I told them I've got an iPhone 4. I told them it's AT&T. I told them it was uh, 32 gigs, I think, um, and that it was in, I, I said, flawless condition. Um, they sent me a box. They sent me a label. I packed it up. I sent it to them. I shipped it off. They sent me emails every step of the way saying, hey, we got your tracking number. Hey, here's where your box is. Hey, we got your box. Hey, we opened your box. We inspected your box. And then boom, the money was in my PayPal account because that's how I opted to get the money. Uh, The whole process from start to finish, the longest process being waiting for my new iPhone to arrive. Uh, but, But once I shipped off my old iPhone to Gazelle, it was just a couple of days before the money was in my bank account. And uh, I could not have been happier with the process. I don't think I will ever sell a gadget another way besides going to Gazelle because it was just absolutely painless. You know, no, no futzing with, you know, trying to sell it to somebody locally, you know, no worrying about getting ripped off, no worrying about, you know, having something else happen. It was just here. Do you want it? This is the price. Yes. Boom. Done. Cash for your stuff, risk-free and it's easy. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, what you can do is, is, you know, if you want to know what your iPhone's worth, you want to get a new iPhone five, you want to know what your iPad's worth. You're thinking about picking up an iPad mini. You're thinking about, uh, picking up one of the new fourth generation iPods. Uh, just take a minute, go to gazelle or new iPods too. uh, go to gazelle.com. That's G A Z E L L E.com. And you can find out and, uh, sell your used iPhone today. And I tell you what, I, they even will take, um, you know, broken iPhones over at gazelle. You know, you think it's not worth worth you getting fixed, you know, they'll take it. They'll give you something for it. Yeah, and it's better than a poke in the eye, right? <laughs> there you go. Well, a flawless a flawless third generation, thirty two gigabyte AT and T iPad will get you four hundred bucks. So if you you know, if you're 
if you're ready to go get the new one, you know, you want to get the new iPad fourth generation or the mini, you're well on your way. So I, I got some thinking to do in the next 30 days. We'll see. All right. That's interesting. You locked it up. You're ready. Oh, yeah. I locked it. I locked it, man. Well, I think Gazelle's a great service. Go check it out. And thanks for sponsoring the podcast. So let's get back to this. Uh, we want to talk about general maintenance. And, uh, you know, it seems like the, there's one app over the ages that has been the, um, <laughs> you know, the go-to application for general maintenance. That's Onyx, O-N-Y-X. And it's, is it still free? It's still free, yep. Yeah. So, I mean, it's been free forever. There's, uh, there was another one that was a paid one called Cocktail. I, I, I actually use Cocktail, too. I bought it a while ago, and I, I think I've still got free upgrades for it. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Okay, so, so Cocktail's still out there as well. I mean, they both do the same thing. They have just – it's a tool belt full of nice little utilities to go through and make changes to your, your computer or check. For instance, fixing your fonts, you can do in Onyx. Yeah, you can. I just don't think you can do it quite to the extent. You can't manage them like you can with Fontbook. Yeah. Well, it's a series of menu items where you can go through diagnostically different elements of your computer. You can look at the hard drive. You can look at the font files. You can look at the memory. And it, it's just got a bunch of options in there for you to go and make changes. This is another one, though, you want to be careful when you're in there. Uh, you can make changes that can actually make your computer worse off if you're not careful. But the both applications do a really good job of, of telling you when you're getting into those danger zones. Now, there's a, there's a lot of talk about these kind of maintenance utilities. Are these things that you do on a preventative basis? Are these things that you do regularly whether you need them or not? Or are these things that you do only when you kind of get the sense that something's not quite right? Are you asking me? I'm asking you, yeah. What yeah, do you do? I, you know, I used to be very aggressive about these things, and I used to run Onyx regularly and go through and check, like, caches as an example, where I would go through and clean caches out. But really, caches are, are really not a bad thing. They're, it's keeping, you know, the most used data, you know, close at hand so the computer can get to it quickly. So I'm not a big fan of doing that anymore because I think it, it ultimately slows your computer down. You have to rebuild those caches, um, or at least unless most often I would, I would say I'm not in favor of doing them unless you're having some kind of problem, but I don't use these applications as much as I used to. And I haven't really noticed much of a difference. How about you? I use them when I feel like I need to, I will run the maintenance scripts every now and again, because I don't know. I, I don't trust that my Mac runs them automatically. I know it's supposed to, if it misses its cycle, it's supposed to run them again the next time it's on, but I'll run the maintenance scripts and I'll still repair permissions manually. Cause I, I don't think that hurts anything, but unless I'm having an issue, I really don't do these full, um, cache wipes update pre-binding or, or any of that stuff. And unless I feel like there's a problem going on. Okay. And I'd like to slow down just a little bit for listeners who aren't familiar with all these things. Um, you know, the maintenance scripts are a series of scripts that Apple has built into the, to the Mac that runs through and does its own system maintenance for you. And they have daily, weekly, I believe monthly yep. uh, maintenance scripts that run. Yep. And for the old time Mac users, it's always, you know, a source of angst because it was never clear when they ran and if they were running or not. In fact, I think when I wrote the Mac at workbook, I, I did a script or I, I wrote a, um, a section on how to check when it's running the script, so you could go into the file and check the dates and force it to run on its own. But 
you know, that was like tiger days. And, you know, it's been several operating systems updates since then. And Apple's got much better at making sure those things happen. And at some point, you know, I'd check them and they had always been run. And I did that for a while. And then I realized, you know what, I can trust the computer now to do this for me. And uh, to be completely honest, I, I haven't checked them at all since I installed Mountain Lion. Have you? Yeah. No, not really. Yeah. So it's a little easier, but where Onyx comes in and apps like Onyx is when something goes wrong. So if suddenly you, you are having a problem with fonts or you are noticing that your computer is unusually slow and activity monitor is not showing you the way, you may want to go into something like Onyx and carefully start you know looking through those tabs and seeing if you can find – well, actually, you're not going to necessarily find a problem, but you can go through and do some basic maintenance from within there that will – in a lot of times uh, fix your problem. You know, in addition to activity monitor, we really didn't talk about some of the menu bar solutions to monitor your system resources. And um, we probably should. Yeah. The the one that there, there are two primary ones. One is called menu meters, which I believe is shareware or donationware. And the other one is iStat menus, which is, um, or I think menu meters is freeware donationware and iStat menus, which is shareware. It's pretty inexpensive. I think it's seven or fourteen bucks or something like that. Yeah, iStat menus is my favorite, and I guess yeah. it's my favorite for the same reason that um, that I like things like Daisy Disk. It's something that does it really well. It makes it really easy to see, and it's a pleasure to use. And the iStat stuff, it's Bajango is the company, Bajango.com. They've ported that technology into every different platform you can think in terms of how you can deliver it on your Mac. They started out as a, um, they started out as a widget. Right. And they still have the widget, widget? I think. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, A dashboard widget. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. And, and it was free and everybody loved it. And then they eventually went to iStat menus, which goes in your menu bar, which is really nice because you see a constant, you can, you can, customize as much as you want but the the most useful piece of it i always found was the activity where you could see if the the processor was maxing itself out and you can also have a very quick access to your hard drive if that's a concern to you but it it has a lot more than that it can tell you how fast the the fans are going what the temperature is inside and a host of other information Um, they also have in the mac app store an app that's just a stat istat menu app which is pretty useful as well. And none of them are that expensive. And I look at those as the the more useful piece of this puzzle in terms of diagnostics. Like when I had um, a MacBook several years ago, it was very fidgety and the menus, I'm sorry, the fans would often kick in and the processor would run wild on it. And the problem ultimately was it didn't have enough RAM, but I would always have that running and I would be checking it out. And so I could, you know, cut it off at the pass. Yeah, using I mean, Go ahead. Just to give you a couple of examples, RAM is one of the things that it will monitor, but it will also monitor uh, CPU. How do you know if you? How do you know if you need to upgrade? How do you know if you need to buy a new Mac? Are you constantly spiking out your CPU? Well, how do you know that? Well, you could have Activity Monitor open the whole time, or you could have a tool like iStat Menus, and I've got the the CPU percentage in my menu bar right here. Talking to you on Skype, I'm running at about fifteen percent. All right, that's pretty good. So I guess I don't need. One of those new Retina 13-inch MacBook Pros? You probably don't. <sighs> Stupid iStep menus. <laughs> we are uh, 
you know, we may talk about some of the Apple stuff. Well, you know, we just did a, a round table on that, by the way. So if you're listening and you're interested in Katie and I's thoughts on Apple's new announcements, uh, Mac round tables releasing before this show. And we talked, both of us talked on that one a little bit. Yeah. You can find it in iTunes or over at a uh, Mac roundtable.com. We should put a link to that in the show notes. Um, but either way, so I use iStat menus or something like that to identify a problem. Then I use Onyx to fix a problem. So if I see that there's something funny going on uh, and it's something that falls within the maintenance realm, I'll you know load up Onyx and always make sure you're running the latest version, by the way, because the, it does the get latest non-beta version is what I do. Yeah, and also be wary of what operating system you're using now that Apple's on a one-year release cycle. Don't use the Lion version in Mountain Lion because this is really low-level stuff and things may go crazy if you are using the wrong version. And in addition to just maintenance and diagnostic stuff, iStat Menu has some really cool features. You know, like when Menu Space was at a premium, I got rid of my battery icon, you know, the horizontal battery icon, and replaced it with a vertical battery icon, saved myself a couple of pixels, and now I have additional information about you know, not only the charge status of my battery, but the cycles, the health, the capacity, the current capacity, you know, the, the voltage, the amperage. And then it also gives me the information about the battery backup that I'm connected to and the battery percentage on my Magic Trackpad, all from that little battery icon in iStat menu. Yeah, I like going to watch uh, screencasts online, especially when Don was doing it back on his old Mac Pro. And he'd have like... Oh. You know, he had like a, I think it was like a 72 core Mac or something. And it was just, I think I it was menus. only 16 and he had two of them like rated together or something. And I'm pretty sure it was 128 cores, but either way, it, it, his menu bar, it was all just um, CPU stats, just a bunch of lines. It looked like an equalizer. Um, Dawn. All right. Yeah. Anyway, um, so that's that's fun. You can find problems. You can fix them. I think if the takeaway is get something like iStat menus and get something like Onyx and be careful. And if you see something and you don't really know what it is, you probably shouldn't be pushing that button. It's fun to push buttons. That's that's how we get into trouble in our nuclear power plants, you know. Yeah, well, it, it's dangerous in something like Onyx. You're, you're okay in iStat menu. All it's doing is diagnostic there. But when you start, you know, fiddling with things, it, it can get in trouble. Uh, another way to deal that is to, uh, is to look at your disk uh, repair, right? You know, because you've got a disk in there. Do you have bad sectors? Do you have problems with that? How do you fix that? Yeah, and that's something that, that I try to do pretty proactively. And, and now it's really easy booting it from the recovery partition. Yeah. is I'll, I'll, I'll make a note. I've got an OmniFocus task at least every three months. I'll boot up from the recovery partition and I'll just, and I don't, I, and I don't even verify it anymore. I just run a repair because what a repair will do is it will run a verify and if it needs to, it will repair it. Um, I will run a verify on my internal hard drive. And then also, and this is very important too, on my external hard drives, on my clone hard drive that I've got connected. Because over time, you're going to start to have issues with your disk. You're going to have to, ha you're going to start to have little corruption here and there. And if it's, you know, a, a little while it will go and it won't give you any problems and it won't give you any problems. And then all of a sudden a little problem will turn into a big problem. And so just running this disk repair, um, and solving a little problem before it gets to the big problem stage, number one means it's more likely that disk utility is going to be able to fix it. And you're not going to need a, either to replace the drive or, or a nuke and pave of the drive or do a, a, a higher level utility like um, 
um, Drive Genius or something like that, or Disc Worry or something like that. Um, but it just keeps these little problems from turning into big problems and keeps you from, you know, it, it's kind of like an early warning signal. Yeah. And once again, here I'm the lawyer talking about disc mechanics, which always gets me in trouble. But as I understand it, there's really two issues with a hard drive. There's the directory, which is the the front part, which tells the drive, you know, it's the directions to the data. It's the and index. That, yeah, the index. That's a good word. I, yeah. I think a card catalog for the really old people out there like me is a good way to put it. But either way, you've got a piece of your drive that tells it where to find the data. And if that gets crunched, you're in big trouble because there's no map to get to the data. And Disk Warrior has always been the application to go to to fix that. Uh, it will go through and find the physical you know, pieces on the map on the hard drive and rebuild the map or the index for you. Uh, and the other problem is bad sectors where pieces of the drive just go bad. I mean, they're mechanical and they fail. Um, that happens both with the traditional spinning disc, you know, magnetic disc with the seeking head drives. It also happens, sadly, on SSD drives. So uh, you want your computer to know where those things are because they're essentially potholes out there for your data to fall into. And, you know, going through and having your computer find those bad sectors or do the repairs will, will help you a lot. Um, but Katie, we, we just jumped into that. And why don't you talk us through how you get into recovery mode and make all that happen? Uh, well, there are a couple of ways that you can do it. Uh, the easy way is just to restart your computer. You can either hold down the option key or you can restart it by holding down the command and R key. And that will boot you into the recovery partition. Or if you hold down the option key, it will show you all of the available partitions that you can boot into and the recovery partition will be one of them. Yeah, I just do Command-R, I mean, because that's the only reason I'm usually doing it. Yeah. Um, I've had one or two occasions where my computer hasn't picked up Command-R, but it almost always picks up me holding down the Option key. I don't know yeah. why. And, um, and then once you get in there, you need to get into the Disk Utility app. Correct. And then from Disk Utility, you can then just do a verify of the disk. Yeah, and the reason you have to do it this uh, method of going into the recovery partition is that normally when you boot up, you're booting up from your internal drive, your boot up drive and a disk utility cannot look at the disk that it's running from. You know, it's like you, what's the old Zen saying? You can't bite your teeth, right? So uh, you need to go to the recovery partition, which is as far as your Mac concerned, a separate drive. And then it will look at the, the boot up drive, the main drive you usually use. And that's why you have to go through those weird steps. Now, there's still some stuff that the recovery partition is not going to be able to fix. And you may have to go to a third-party utility, but it's been pretty good to me. Yeah, and I think it's got better over the years. And frankly, it's a good way to find out if there's a problem with the drive. If you're seeing it's repairing lots and lots of errors, you should have red flags going up. Um, And the other thing that... um. I've noticed since Mountain Lion, I've actually had a couple of people tweet this to me. Have you noticed that smart status is missing? You know, I, I haven't. Is it not there anymore? Yeah. If you if you go into Disk Utility in Mountain Lion, it says smart status. It used to say verified or not, which would kind of be a, a, an early warning system. Yeah. Although I've had drives that say smart status, okay, and then they would crash the next time you restarted them. So, you know, I never knew how much of an early warning system that was. It's kind of one of those things that if the smart status was not okay, you were in trouble, but just it saying okay didn't necessarily mean you were safe. Yeah. The, so the idea behind smart status, it's, I don't, I don't, what does it stand for? It's S-M-A-R-T with 
you know, it was, oh, self-monitoring analysis and reporting technology. So it's supposed to have your drive give you a little warning before it's about to give up the ghost. And it seems to me like you could flip a coin with about the same regularity in my experience. Maybe Apple gave up on it too. I, I can't find out as I search here, as we sit, whether or not that technology is even supported with the SSD drives. Maybe it's not, or maybe Apple has something else in the, in mind. Either way, um, hard drives will fail, make a lot of backups. Always good advice. Um, and the last thing that I really have gotten away from doing, especially since I tend to upgrade my computers every 18 months or so, which I know is probably more frequent than most. And also with new operating systems coming out now on a yearly basis, it's a, it's a good opportunity, you know, for, I I just find it to be less necessary. But back in the day when operating systems used to come out, you know, every two years or so, and maybe I was only getting a new machine every four or five years or so, it used to be pretty regular for me to do a full nuke and pave at least every time a new operating system came out and maybe as often as once a year. And I just haven't found that, you know, I think we talked about that on our, on our mountain lion show or one of our getting ready for shows it it just doesn't seem to be as necessary anymore. Yeah, I think it's almost become a placebo where you say, well, new operating system, I'm going to rebuild my Mac. And it does feel good to go into the applications folder and see it's really clean and there's not much stuff in there. Um, and, you know, you go into the menu bar and the menu bar is blank and then you have the joy of rebuilding it. And because we're nerds, it kind of is joy. It is fun reinstalling things and resetting things and doing all this. But... I don't know. At some point I, I lost the joy. So I don't do it unless there's a really good reason. I think it was after Snow Leopard. I uh, I had some trouble and the computer just continually was giving me grief. And finally I just had it and I took, you know, the iMac out and just you know restarted and reformatted and did a nuke and pave and it fixed whatever problems I had. But I think that's the only time to do it. Yeah, I had a similar issue with my dad's laptop. It's it's a couple years old. It's an, it's a the last generation before the Unibody MacBook Pros, and it just had not been right in a while. I mean, it he doesn't have much on it. It was always running slow, and just something wasn't right. It was always beach balling, and I was really concerned it was a hardware issue because, of course, now it's it's outside of Apple Care, and with you know Mountain Lion had come up or. Yeah, Mountain Lion had come up recently, and I just said, you know what, let me take this and let me just do a total nuke and pave on it. And that machine, knock on wood, has been running beautifully ever since the nuke and pave. So I'm convinced he had some kind of, I don't know if it was an application corruption, I don't know if it was OS-level corruption, I don't know what it was, but he had some kind of gremlin in there that that just finally nuking it and getting rid of it made it give up the ghost. Yeah, and you never would have found it, so you did the right thing. Um, so but I, just, but just doing it for the heck of it, you know, like we used to do, I'm not a fan of that anymore. Got better things to do with your time. Yeah. I mean, I do, <laughs> but the, uh, you know, it, I think maybe it's just less necessary now. I don't know, but, uh, I, I'm curious what people think about that because, uh, are there people that, that routinely nuke and pave or is that a thing of the past as we move forward into, you know, computers becoming more reliable and more appliance-like. I think that's something that's just going to go away. Yeah, I mean, when you think, well, I, I did a nuke and pave on my, I guess, a, is a nuke and pave on your iPhone when you do a restore and you restore from the backup? I guess a nuke and pave would be a, a 
a restore and you don't back up. Yeah, that would be wiping all the data and then going to the app store and re-downloading stuff, you know, manually. And then resyncing. Yeah, typing in your email credential and all that stuff. Oh, I'll do that. Okay. I've done a restore that solves some gremlins, but uh, I'd have to be pretty desperate to do that. Yeah. Hey, let's talk about a sponsor. Yeah, you want to talk about the Omni Group? I had a pretty good experience with some some Omni products this past week. Yeah, I understand you're becoming the Omni Graffle Pro. I am. I am. I've been I'm working on a, a big project for work with um, um, one of my older senior partners, perhaps, who is not very tech savvy, and and it was kind of a complicated case and. We were we were trying to show the the relationship of things, and we were were trying to show how all these people related and this timeline of events. And um, I had to do a, a big presentation for this case, and my senior partner before he goes off on um, on a trip, he he gives me this this legal pad with about five words on it, and says, "Here, you can work on the presentation while I'm gone." And um, and it's just oh my goodness, so something something's got to be done. So I start pulling out OmniGraffle uh, initially on my Mac and then subsequently on my my iPad, and I start figuring out, okay, well, well, what is this actually about? It's kind of a complicated issue. How can I break it down? You know, I'm kind of using it initially as a mind map because I'm, you know, I'm explaining, you know, I've got to explain to our clients and I've got to explain to people how all these different pieces fit together. Um, and and so I, you know, I'm just pulling these pieces all together in OmniGraffle and I'm I'm creating these these pretty complex structures structures and then showing how they're all interconnected and showing how all these people are interconnected and then showing how this day, you know, mapped out in, in OmniGraffle and how this happened, which caused this to happen, which caused this to happen. And this therefore flows from that. And it was just, you know, I can't think of any product on a PC that I could have used that would have created that kind of experience. And I mean, the only other alternative I could have thought of, which, which would have turned out miserably, you know, would have get, would have been to stand up in front of a room full of people, you know, with a, with a dry erase marker on a whiteboard and just start diagramming this out. So after I had it all diagrammed out and, and presented it to my client and presented it to my partner, when it was actually time to give the presentation, I pulled out my, my trusty iPad and, and, and my setup that I had rehearsed and out it came on OmniGraffle for iPad and uh, lots of compliments about my presentation. You know, OmniGraffle is a diagramming tool. I think that's the way I always think of it. But anybody who's in the business of conveying information with a computer should be looking at this application because it makes it really easy to generate uh, professional-looking diagrams. And they've got the smart guides. They've got the ability to import and export to, like, PNG without a background so you can drop it right into your presentation. Uh, Graphing tools, Bezier curves. Um, you know, there's so much you can do with this thing and I'm not a professional graphics guy. You know, I, I don't have the time or frankly, the training to make professional graphics, but yet I continue to make graphics in this application that people think are professional Uh, and it just keeps getting better as they release additional updates. Uh, one of the things I really like about OmniGraffle is the way you can do a, uh, a layout view. You can put a layout, an outline in, and you can start putting, um, head points and then siblings and children underneath that. And, you know, it, and it just creates a diagram right on the screen as you do that. Have you played with the outline view? A little bit. Yeah. Oh, you got to try that. It's it's amazing. So like if you 
I'm going to talk about lawyer stuff. If you're going to have a case with different parties and different relationships with them, you can create that as quickly as it takes you to type their names. And it's just amazing. But Oh, yeah, you, and then it automatically fills in the boxes and creates a pretty graphic for you. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you're that's doing, awesome. Yeah, if you're doing sales, uh, whatever you're doing, I mean, even just like if you're using it for school, I could see a use for that. I mean, I wish this tool existed when I first started. I remember when I first started practicing law, we used to get these big blow-ups and we'd, you know, we would show up with marker pens and make this horrendous mess on the screen and the jury would have no idea what we were talking about by the end. So this is a really fantastic application. And because it's by Omni, it's done very well. I mean, the Omni group doesn't ship bad software. And this thing is extremely easy to use. It's kind of fun to use it as you get used to it. They've got a version for the iPad and the Mac. So like you, you just experienced, you can move this stuff back and forth. I actually kind of like it on the iPad better because I've got to where I can use my fingers to do this stuff almost as fast as I can with a mouse. But it's a great piece of software. And if you do anything that involves diagrams, go check it out. So you can get it from the Omni Group. Uh, it's, uh, there's two different versions. The standard version is $100. The Pro version is $200. And the Pro version gives you some additional features like multi-page and the ability to use it as an actual presentation tool. And, you know, I've lost track. How much is the version on the... The iPad version is forty nine ninety nine. And worth every penny. Yeah, it, it really is. And you just have to go experience it to check it out. On the Mac, you can get a, a demo version. And because it's the Omni Group, they have a 30-day money-back guarantee on all their software. Uh, so you should definitely check this one out. And thanks, Omni Group, for uh, making this possible. So where were we on our outline, Katie? Uh, well, I think we've talked about general um, maintenance and... Um Probably the next thing to talk about is uh, just the need to keep updated. Yeah. And, w- and you're talking about software updates at this point. Right. Yeah. So so that's a lot easier than it used to be as well, right? Because if you're buying stuff in the App Store, just load the App Store and you'll see. I, I, I love the App Store for software updates. I know the App Store comes with its own set of problems, but being able to go just one place and see that you've got all of these updates in here, would you like me to click a button and download it? And, oh, if you need to reinstall something or install something on a different Mac, here it is. Click the button and download. It is just so easy. Yeah, we're recording this uh, just as Apple finishes its big announcements, and I was madly pressing the update button because I wanted to see the new version of iBooks Author. And there it is. And a nice benefit of Mountain Lion is that the system updates are now also in the App Store app. It used to be that you had to go to the Apple menu and do software update button there. And so you had two different places to go to, which was kind of confusing. And now the system updates come in right into the App Store. It's a, you know, it's almost like this is a non-issue now because Notification Center is going to tell you when you have app, date, app updates available. Whereas a few operating systems ago, you know, a lot of people wouldn't realize that they had updates available for their software. Yeah, I found Notification Center can be a little bit delayed sometimes in telling you that your updates are available, but not horrible. That's not necessarily a bad thing. As much as I like being updated on system updates, I also don't like being the first one to find out the system update's bad. Yeah, that doesn't happen as often. I mean, it really only happened once or twice, and, and it's pretty rare now. Yeah, well, security updates definitely do them right away. Uh, basic, you know, major point revisions. Uh, I'm I'm still willing to wait a few days 
to see how everything goes. Yeah, I mean, like Apple just had, for example, at least for Mountain Lion, I don't have another machine to test it on, um, a pretty significant Java update, which really turned out not to be an update at all. They were really just removing Java components and saying, hey, you want Java? Go to Oracle. Yeah. (laughs) They found the best way to update it. (laughs) Put the monkey on somebody else's back. Yeah, I don't know. That's necessarily a bad thing. That's basically what they've done with Flash. Yeah. I tell you what, I'd I'd be completely done with Java if it wasn't for CrashPlan. Yeah. So... Anyway, um, but but speaking of Flash, and I think one of the best updates you can do to your computer is a software update, and that's to update your browser. Um, I really like the new Safari. I, I know we had our browser SmackDown show. A, a, yeah, it's been maybe a year or so now, and I was a I was a Chrome puff, and I was really using Chrome, and and I do like Chrome. Chrome is my second browser of choice, and I, I still use Chrome for certain things because for whatever reason, Safari six hasn't been great to me. Um, when accessing Google Docs, which we do quite a bit for the podcast. But upgrading your browser, whether it's, you know, you decide that you don't like your default browser, so you want to go look at some other options. Um, maybe you want to look at Chrome. Maybe you want to look at Firefox. But besides just upgrading your browser, and maybe that means upgrading your operating system to get to a better version of your browser, or if you're on an older OS, maybe finding one of the more modern browsers like Chrome. But I I really have liked, although I'm not an advocate of adding a ton of extensions to your web browser, um, you know, there are some extensions and there are some other things that you can add to your web browser to really upgrade the browser experience. Yeah. And you can also, uh, if you're running Safari, you can get Flash off your computer. If you're running Chrome, you mean, right? I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm, I Because you have Chrome, you can run Flash through Chrome and then you can otherwise remove Flash from your computer, which is is nice. Yeah, I've I've done that on my MacBook Air. I I do actually still have Flash installed on my Mac Mini because I, some websites that you play video through require Flash, but um or no, I'm, I think it's the Hulu player requires Flash. But yeah, otherwise and, Flash is gone. And I'm not on a, you know, a religious battle against Flash, but I I just find that it's not worth the trouble of having it in because that is the kind of thing that runs, you know, iStat menus off the charts once in a while and does run processors up and it does kill batteries on laptops. So you want to be careful. If if you don't want to remove Flash entirely, there's an app called Click to Flash, which is great. It's a plugin for Safari and any Flash box will just show a box and you'd have to click on it to enable the Flash in that box. Yeah. That's probably an easier solution. Right. And I think, did did we talk on that Browser Smackdown show about some of the extensions that we were using? I don't think either of us use a ton of extensions. No, I, I don't use many. There were a few. I mean, obviously, I use the 1Password extension, and I, I use Evernote quite a bit, so I use the Evernote Web Clipper extension. Yeah, I'm using that more now, too. I've got the Web Clipper on. There's a great one now for uh, the newer, newest version of Flash and Mountain Lion called AnySearch by Matt Swain. And it allows you to pick a default search engine because you know how now Safari has that, that single bar at the top where you can do searches from. Right. I like to use DuckDuckGo. And after I installed this plugin, now it just searches DuckDuckGo from the, um, from the URL bar. Very cool. Yeah. I'll put a link in for that. Uh, and then lastly, in, unless you've got any more software updates or upgrade tips, I think that gets us to hardware, doesn't it? Well, you know, there's one point, and we've talked about this one app before uh, called Memory Clean. It's free currently in the App Store. And this is the one where I wasn't sure it made any difference. But you, but know, you click the button anyway. 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's kind of like lost, right? But the um, so what it does is it theoretically goes through and clears out your memory. And when you're running a lot of apps and you're running low on memory, it can make a difference. Back when I had a four gigabyte MacBook Air, I had this app or its predecessor, and I clicked it like daily. Don't do it so much anymore because I've got more RAM. But if you're low on RAM, that's something you want to look into. And you know, after we had a discussion about this on air, uh, you know whether it makes any difference at all. And I got some emails from some pretty smart people saying that it actually does help. So I get emails from people, and I know you get them too, all the time saying, I can't afford a new Mac, but my Mac really feels like it's lagging. What can I do? Yeah, and so my, what, what can you do to speed it up beyond the stuff we've talked about? My answer to them is always the same. You know, it depends on how much money you want to spend. But I always ask, how much RAM do you have? And what kind of hard drive do you have in there? Because far and away, the best upgrade I have made to my Mac is, is adding an SSD drive. Now, it can also be expensive, though. Yeah. And it's funny, because before SSDs, you would say add RAM without a doubt, always add RAM. But the SSD really is, is it, the bottleneck is that the spinning drive in a lot of ways. Well, and, and I think it depends though. I mean, if, if someone writes you and says, I have four gigabytes of RAM and my Mac feels really slow, what should I do? I think, I think add an SSD is, is a good f response. If someone writes you and says, I have one or two gigs of RAM in my Mac, what should I do? Then I think I'm going to say, no, spend 50 bucks and add some RAM. Well, you know, if someone told me they had four gigs, I would consider telling them to buy some RAM for that as well. Because you're you're almost on the, the edge there, depending on what you're doing with it. Yeah, uh, because Apple, Apple's, I don't know if they still ship, but for a long time they've been shipping Macs with, I know two gigs was, was their minimum and maybe even less. Yeah, I think I think four gigs now is the smallest Mac you can get. Okay. All right. Well, that's better at least, but but not great. Yeah, the the original eleven inch MacBook Air was two gigs, which I I, I couldn't imagine working with that because I'm doing like speech recognition stuff all the time, and yeah, I'm using quite a bit of memory. And when I got you know when I'm doing the iBooks author stuff, and I've got these massive book files with video and everything embedded in, there's no way it would work. And here's the thing about RAM, with the exception of the MacBook Air, where once you get the RAM, you're stuck with the RAM because it's soldered to the board. RAM is really, really easy to upgrade, and it's fairly inexpensive. Um, I usually always buy my RAM either from Crucial or from Otherworld Computing, and I can, you know, I just upgrade when I did the nuke and pay of my dad's machine. I upgraded his machine to whatever the max was. I think his was only take six. Um, I upgraded his to the max um, for less than, you know, 50 or 60 bucks. I just put eight gigs of RAM into a Mac Mini for, again, 50 or 60 bucks. I, I mean, RAM is pretty cheap now that you can almost upgrade to your, I mean, unless you're talking about a Mac Pro where you're just majorly maxing it out. But, but you can usually get, Either your max or pretty close to your max for a hundred, hundred fifty bucks or less. Yeah, I mean it's now, pretty expensive upgrade. And the entry level MacBook Air, the eleven inch, the nine ninety nine Mac is four gigabytes of RAM now. Um, and also, I'd add to that that these Retina MacBook Pros, I'm pretty sure I'm not going to be able to upgrade the RAM in there without bringing it, bringing it to Apple. That's that's correct. I don't even know that you can upgrade it if you bring it to Apple. Yeah, I I don't either. 
So uh, that's another thing to be wary of is if you're, I, I think most people who are considering doing this probably have older Macs, but if you've got a newer Mac, you need to be wary of that when you buy. And that's one thing I would always say, max out the RAM if, if you can't do it later. If you can do it later, you can definitely save a lot of money by going with a third-party provider rather than buying the RAM from Apple. But if you can't do it later, just bite the bullet and do it. Yeah, you can't on the Retina MacBook Pro. You know, I knew that. I, I'm just so old. I forget these things. Yeah, so you're buying one of these computers now. Make sure you know that the answer to that question before you buy it. So I I had one of those terrifying moments recently. You know how I just said it's super easy to upgrade RAM? Yeah. I I pulled out my little OWC toolkit, and I I, I had some RAM, and I was upgrading my dad's MacBook Pro. I just finished nuking and paving, and I'd just gotten everything all upgraded, and I was holding on to it an extra day or two because I had ordered some RAM, and I was waiting for it to arrive. And I'm kind of only half paying attention to what I'm doing because I'm I'm doing it on the coffee table and I'm watching TV as I'm upgrading the RAM because I have upgraded the RAM in laptops and desktops alike 50 times, 60 times, you know, so many times. So I just flip it open on a towel right there on the coffee table, you know, unscrew three screws, pop open the RAM, pop it back, flip it back over, you know, turn it on. And the worst sound that you could possibly hear happens. Three beeps of death. Oh, that's not good. And I was just, I was just like, oh my God, what just happened? Did I just buy this computer? Yeah. Because what am I going to say? Oh, sorry, dad. I fried your computer while I was replacing RAM. Here you go. Yeah. That's what I'd say. (laughs) Okay. Well, you can call him and tell him. (laughs) Yeah. Now you could say, uh, Max Sparky came over and did it for me and totally screwed it up. Dad, you should, you should be really mad at him. Yeah. (laughs) And I was like, uh, and, and so I was really nervous. I mean, did did I get bad RAM? That's possible. That happens. Or was I just not paying attention? And did, did I screw this up and short the board? Yeah. You know, did I screw something up? Which so is kind of hard to happened. do. So I pulled out the RAM and I put back in the old RAM and I flipped it over and I prayed and it came back online. And I said, okay. So either I got bad RAM or I ordered, or they sent me the wrong RAM, or I ordered the wrong RAM. That's yeah. what I'm thinking at this point. And then I'm thinking, or maybe I just wasn't really paying attention when I did it. I didn't stick them in all the way. So did you go back in? I did. I was like, do I go back in, or do I just send this RAM back and say, send me a fresh pair, because I'm nervous now. Yeah. I went well, back in. I went back in, and I was just extra careful to make sure that, you know, I just spent another another minute of extra time and made sure that I really had it you know, all pushed in and all snug and secure and flipped it back over and, and it worked the second time. Yeah. I, I, every time I open a computer, I always go back to YouTube and watch the videos over again. And, and, you know, I have this whole intricate system for storing the screws as they come out and yeah, just be careful when you're doing that stuff. Well, it just goes to show you, you can't take it for granted no matter how many times you've done it. And I don't know what I screwed up the first time because you can't really put them in wrong because they don't fit the wrong way. But I, I think I just didn't have them properly seated. I don't think, I don't think I'd push them in all the way. Yeah. So do you recommend people upgrade a 54 speed, 5,400 RPM drive to a 7,200 RPM drive? Um, I used to, I don't think that I do anymore. It's an option. Um, you know, so on the topic of hard drives, not everybody can go to SSD, right? Because they just, SSD is too cost prohibitive or they really need the, the space. Yeah, I mean, they don't make them big enough for somebody who wants to store five terabytes on their computer. You just can't, 
that's not possible. Well, I don't think they make a five terabyte regular size drive. Well, whatever. But right? they do they do make terabytes and they do make terabytes and a half. I think they do make two terabyte hard drives now, maybe yeah. even three. And I'm talking laptop size hard drives, but whatever. Um, so one of the, you know, three, four years ago, I used to always say, okay, one of the easy upgrades you could do is you could go from the stock 5,400 RPM drive to the 7,200 RPM drive and you would get a speed boost. I would usually almost always increase the size of the drive at the same time I did the upgrade. You'd get a little more heat, but not enough that it would really cause problems. Um, I never, I never noticed that you got any more heat from it, but. I didn't pay that close of attention, I guess. Yeah. But but the improvement isn't that much. And the point is that now SSDs are getting cheaper and the difference between just getting an SSD or going to the 7200 is is an easier call to make to say go to the SSD. Well, there is a step in the middle that I'll mention and and this kind of is timely with Apple's whole fusion drive thing that they're doing. Yeah. And and I don't know how long before that technology because I know the what what Apple's doing is they're they're basically doing a two hard drive solution that they're then fusing together in software. Yeah, and that's just on the iMac. Just on the well, on on the Mac Mini too, on the new Mac oh, Mini. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but what has been available for a couple of years now, and Seagate in particular makes one, is what they call a hard drive. Uh, I'm sorry, a, yeah, hard drive. Seagate makes a hard drive. Did you know that? No, I didn't. That's yeah. great news. Um, they make a hybrid drive. Yeah. which um, is a traditional rotational hard drive. Usually it's a 7,200 RPM hard drive, so it's a little bit faster drive. But it has a flash chip stuck on it. Um, so it's a little bit more expensive. So it's probably 20 or 30 bucks more expensive than a traditional rotational drive of the same size. But it has actually inside the drive or on attached to the drive a flash chip. So you install this drive, and in the firmware of the drive, it manages itself, and it does some advanced caching and some storing of files that are frequently accessed on the flash component of the hard drive so that you supposedly get faster startup times, faster boot times of of certain applications, and it's supposed to learn. And, And the... The, they are certainly not as fast as SSDs, but but they are several percentage points faster than traditional rotational hard drives. Yeah, and, I've and never, you can get I, pretty big, good sizes out of them. Yeah, I've never used one, but as I understand them, they they like when you save a file, it saves it to the flash rather than the hard drive, and then the hard drive takes care of transferring it over to the spinning disk without you really seeing the process happen, which is really smart and. Uh, they've got those in varying sizes. I know some of them get pretty large where you could almost treat it as two different drives, but it's all in the phys- same physical enclosure. That being said, I've never used one. Now, let's talk a little bit about Apple's new announcement about this Fusion drive. And you've been able to buy an iMac with two drives in it for some time. There are builds of the the existing iMac that you can get with an SSD and a spinning drive inside of it. But Apple never managed that for you. So you would traditionally put all your boot-up stuff on the SSD drive and your applications and the, the things you wanted to access very quickly. And then you would look at the, you know, the spinning drive as like your iTunes storage or your video storage or whatever that, you know, the big, the hog files you had that you wanted to keep in your, in your Mac. So what they've done now is saying, I think, you know, it was just too early in the game. I haven't seen enough about this to know for certain, but I think it's still two separate drives. And that's my understanding. Yes. 
and so so what they've done now is built into the operating system better management of that, which will look at the applications that you use most often and it'll be moving them around. And, you know, the example they use in the presentation is, is Aperture. If you use Aperture all the time, it'll realize that and it'll move Aperture over to your SSD as opposed to keeping it on that spinning drive. I think it's a good solution, but I think all of this stuff is transitory. Um, if you look at the cost of an SSD drive now versus three years ago, it's substantially cheaper. And in another two or three years, I, I just think we're going to get to a point where people are going to stop using the spinning drives for their computers. I mean, there still may be a market for them in like big server farms and things like that. But uh, for the carry around computers or the sit on your desk computers, everybody's just going to have an SSD. I think all this stuff is, is just kind of a, a band aid to hold it together until we get there. Now, the other kind of mid-level and it's, it's a geeky solution and it's only going to work if, if you have the right kind of Mac but but have you seen these OptiBay or dual drive solutions? Yeah, I had one for a while. Did you really? Yeah, mm-hmm. where I had an I had a MacBook Pro and I took out the optical drive and I had a OptiBay. I think that's what it was called where you, this was major surgery. You had to open your Mac and remove components and then you'd install this essentially a sheet of of aluminum, I think it was, that you attached a drive to. And then it it's it's a sheet of board. aluminum that's the same size as your optical drive, but it has a slot in it, uh, a SATA slot, which is the same connection as the optical drive. It has a SATA slot that you can then stick another hard drive in, right? So, so you could put an SSD in as your traditional boot up drive, and then you could have a second drive in your laptop that would allow you to, you know, have that data storage. However, that's all going away because these optical drives are disappearing. But but if someone still has an older Mac, yeah. what you would see people do is pull out the optical drive. Usually they would come with some kind of combo that includes an enclosure for your optical drive so that you could yeah. still use the optical drive. Yeah. And then stick in a fairly inexpensive, say, 60 or 120 gigabyte SSD drive. And then they still have all of the storage of their primary hard drive, but they've got the speed of an SSD. And again, it's kind of a dual drive solution that requires some some modern management. And if you ever, I mean, probably anybody who's considering this, their Mac's probably out of warranty. Um, but it's something you definitely have to undo before you took it in for warranty. Yeah. Yeah. What What did you think of the dual drive solution? Was it, I liked was it, it. more of a pain to manage or? No, I liked it. I mean, that's, I thought it was cool, you know, uh, it was scary doing it, um, but once I got it set up, it was great, and I rarely use the optical drive. Were you really seeing the speed boost that they said you would see? Was it just as fast as using an SSD or almost as fast as using no. an SSD full-time? No, I mean, it, it's just like the SSD. You know what? This has been a while, so I don't think I had an SSD. I think I just oh, needed you it just for additional used it storage. for extra storage. Wow. Yeah. You could have rated them. I may have had a very small SSD in there. This may have been at the very beginning of SSD days. Right. I've kind of lost track. It's, isn't that sad? I can't mm. remember all my Macs. <sighs> you don't have them that, all stacked up on shelves? No, no. I sell them when I'm done yeah. with them. But the uh, but I know when, when all was said and done, I put it all back together, back you know as factory fresh before I sold it. I mean, all of those solutions... You know, I think they are a thing that have a certain amount of time and the time is going to pass sooner or later. But I understand this show is really talking about making an older Mac go faster. And 
I know people you still do that stuff. You can still buy those kits. And it wasn't that difficult. I'm not by any stretch of the imagination a you know a, a Kyle Weens type of you know Mac expert and taking stuff apart. It just wasn't that difficult. I still say you know far and away if if there's one takeaway if you can afford it and, and you want to keep your Mac going for a couple more years and you really want the feel of a new machine, put an SSD in there. Um, now if you've got a lot of stuff, I think you need to figure out you know how to how to archive it off. Or, um, you know, maybe you carry around an external hard drive or maybe you put your iTunes in the cloud or, um, you know, I, I, I don't know. But, gosh, if you can figure out any way to get an SSD in your Mac and keep you going for a couple more years, maybe throw in a little extra RAM while you're there, huge, huge difference. Yeah, and we've talked about this on the past, so I don't want to sound like a broken record, but the SSD improvement to me is a uh, is a watershed event in the advancement of these computers it's just like in the old days we had floppy disks and even before that we had cassettes and going from cassettes to floppy was a massive improvement as you can imagine. <laughs> and, but uh, then going from the floppy drives to the hard drive was a massive improvement. I mean, that's the reason why, you know, this broke college kid spent hundreds of dollars for his super 20 megabyte drive that I bought. And the SSD is the same order of magnitude it's just a massive improvement if you haven't had one yet in your computer uh, don't play with one unless you're willing to buy it because there's no way you can stop it um and the other thing i wanted to mention I, i've got a good friend of mine who's an apple uh certified i, I think apple certified repair tech he, he has a shop that actually you know if, if you're getting apple care service under your mac that you you can take it to his shop and I had him come by and, and speak to our user group about SSDs and things like that. And at the at the end of that, I asked him, you know, because he was strongly recommending the SSD upgrade. And I asked him, I said, okay, what happens if, say, I've got my computer and it's it's under warranty and I'm nervous and and I don't want to do this myself. I don't want to put this drive in myself. Maybe I've got an iMac. I know you've got an iMac and you'd really like to get an SSD in there, but you're you're kind of nervous about the whole suction cup thing. Yeah. Um, you know, or maybe you've got an older Mac Mini and and you're kind of nervous about, you know, getting out the putty knife. Although I did that recently. It's not as bad as it looks. It's okay. Get a really small thin putty knife. It'll be okay. Um can you are there are there places and are there services where you can take your Mac and and they'll do this for you? Um and he said, "Yeah, absolutely. You know, you're going to you're going to pay for the service, but there's probably a, a, a lo I would try to find a local Apple authorized service center. Now they may not do it as an Apple authorized service, um, but at least, you know, you've got people working on your Mac who, who do that thing every day. Yeah. Uh, it's a, and just, a, you know, first world problem. The, the specific iMac I own for some reason, it's a very difficult project because they made some changes in terms of what kind of hard drives will work in it and, I don't even want to get into it right now, but I'm just going to live with it. Frankly, I'm fine. New I have Daisy IMAX just released. Uh, no, 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 I'm done. <laughs> you know, I, I sometimes wonder if I will buy another iMac, you know, in a couple of years when this one's ready to go, because this, I, I love this retina MacBook pro so much. I, I'm, I'm really surprised at how much I have, you know, become attached to this computer. So I don't know. My future may just be a screen with a with a laptop, you know, one computer. Mm. Interesting. 
It's hard though, because I really love, I have, I run the heck out of the mail app in my home computer. I have so many rules in that thing. You know, basically I've recreated, you know, how Google has this great server side rule system. I've been doing that for my own particular use with my own mail app over the years. And I'd really be sad if I didn't have that. Well, just get a little mini. Yeah. Yeah. yeah stick it on the desk. Nobody knows it's there. I'm I'm fine for a, a long time. I'm, All right. All right. I spent my money this year on that, that Retina MacBook Pro, which I absolutely adore. All right. I just open the screen and I just look at it still. I just can't <laughs> believe it. Anyway, I think we've gone on enough. There's yeah. there's a lot of ways you can make your Mac faster, software, hardware, maintenance. And uh, hopefully we've pointed you to a few that can help you out at home. Well, let's talk about our last sponsor and then let's, uh, let's get some feedback. All right. And our last sponsor for this episode is 1Password. Now, we have sung the praises of 1Password over and over again about how it can allow you to create strong, secure, and unique passwords on your Mac, on your PC, on your iPhone. And it doesn't really matter because your passwords are everywhere. They sync via Dropbox. So if I'm not at my Mac, I pull up my iPhone, I've got my password at my fingertips. If I'm on my iPad and I need to access something, I just log into 1Password and go through that browser. Um, If I'm on my Mac or my PC at work, I can either log into 1Password uh, through my Mac, through my web browser. It just works because they've got extensions for everything. And I have a lot of people ask me, all right, what do I do if I'm at a computer and I don't have 1Password? You know, so I'm at, I'm at Joe Schmo's house and I need to get access to something. I need to get on the, on the internet and, and I don't have my password. And I said, well, you know, you you could you could pull out your iPhone or your your iPad because for me my iPhone is already always in my pocket and and pull up your your passwords that way. And he says, "Okay, well, what if I don't have an iOS device?" Okay, well, I I don't know who that is, but okay, let's let's go with that. You don't have an iOS device and you're you're at somebody else's house and you you've all, all you've got is a web browser and you need to access your one password passwords. This seems like an impossible task, right? Of course. How could you do that? But it's not. So 1Password has this really cool feature called 1Password Anywhere. And you know what's cool about it? It's anywhere. It is anywhere. So (laughs) all you have to do is get access to your Dropbox account. So hopefully you know your password to your Dropbox account and that's not locked into 1Password or you may have to get your iOS device and, you know, type in that password manually. So you, you get access to your, your Dropbox account because you've got all of your 1Password data syncing up through Dropbox and you've got this 1Password file in Dropbox. And how ingenious is this? Who thinks about this except these crazy people at 1Password who just stay up late at night thinking, wouldn't it be cool if we could? And then they do it. I mean, it's just mind boggling. So you log into your Dropbox account on your friend's computer or wherever you are. Please, not at Starbucks or a public internet cafe, whatever. And inside your Dropbox account, you've got your 1Password file. And inside that 1Password file is actually an HTML file that you can use to launch a 1Password instance in your web browser and securely get access to all of your things in 1Password. They've got a screencast on their website that explains this a lot better in like 30 seconds than I just did in this entire ad spot. But trust me, it is the coolest thing. It sounds a little bit terrifying, you know, when you first think about it. Like, what? You know, you can get that from your friend's computer, but it's all through your Dropbox security. So you're okay, so long as you have a good Dropbox password. Yeah. So it's, I mean, 
one password really is everywhere. It's on the Mac. It's on the PC. It's on the iPhone. It's on the iPad. It's on the iPad mini. It's on the Android. Um, and, and it really is anywhere. I think it's one of those companies that's an example of, you know, a people hire a people where if you look at the people that work for agile, the, the publishers of one password, they're just really top notch in the security stuff. And they are always finding better ways to, to build the mousetrap. It's, it's an amazing app. And you forgot to mention, you know, if you're at your friend's house and you don't have an iPhone, maybe you have an Android phone, they've got an app for that too. So yeah, no matter what platform you're on, this thing is going to work great for you. And uh, we have been talking about them for a long time, but they're they're worth talking about because it's just such a useful application. And if you haven't tried it out yet, uh, please just go try it. But more likely, you already have tried it and you already love it, but go tell somebody else about it because really we need to get the word out there about this stuff because security is going to become an increasing problem. And I know that family members are very pleased when I turn them onto 1Password because it's something that even non-nerds can do. And it really is true security on your Mac. It allows you to use the type of security you're supposed to without all the mental overhead that it normally requires. Yeah. Well, see, I don't want my family members compromising my security because of their poor passwords. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. So uh, you can find 1Password in the Mac App Store. It's available for $49.99. And then you can download it and use it on all your computers that are associated with your Mac App Store account. If you need it for Windows, they've got that too. You can find it on their website at onepassword.com. They've even got a Mac and Windows bundle that's available for $69.99, so you get licenses for both. If you're an iOS user, you can get an iOS Pro license for $14.99, which will work on your iPhone or your iPad, all varieties of iPad, uh, and, and the iPod Touch, I suppose. Uh, or a single license to either the iPhone or or the iPad will work for $9.99. And anything that is purchased through the Agile Bits store, which is at onepassword.com, you can save 20% off by using the link on our site. So thank you to OnePassword for continuing to support our show. Okay, so let's hit some feedback. All right, what's up? Yeah, well, well, you know, we've, we've gone pretty long now, so let's just cut it short. Um, we did get that email uh, about the airport in the hotel. Yeah, yeah, I used this recently. Um, Jean Francois, uh, Jean Francois, maybe Jean Francois. I don't know. Okay, well, well, I don't well, want to well, mess it up. You, you've already just totally I've already butchered it. So. it. I'm so sorry. <laughs> um, wrote in and said, uh, "I like to use an Airport Express when I travel, and I do. I have an Airport Express in my travel bag, but they would like to suggest that I don't need to take an Airport Express. That all I have to do." is uh, I can plug in my, my MacBook Air and I can create a network with my MacBook Air or my MacBook, any, any, any portable laptop or really any, any Apple computer has had this ability for a while where if you've got it plugged in via Ethernet that you can then create a network yeah. from your computer. And that's a great tip. That's a good thing to know. I've, I've used this in a pinch when I've needed to get an Apple TV on a network or something like that or before I had my airport solution. Or sometimes you'll have a a hotel that will block you and won't let you use your airport because it will assign to a device and it won't let you get multiple devices on the network. So that will work in a pinch. I'll tell you, I still prefer the airport solution just because the wireless range on, um, 
using your computer as a base station isn't great. Um, and I don't think the security is as strong. Last time I checked, you could only get WEP and maybe WPA security now um, using your computer as a as a transmitter for that stuff. And I, I, I like to use the WPA too on my Airport Express. So I mean, WEP uh, security, I think you can hack that in less than five minutes. I think someone said it was the equivalent of wrapping tin foil around your Ethernet cable. Yeah, it's, it just doesn't doesn't make any i can't imagine apple would limit it to that in 2012 i, I, I know at one point it was i i have not i have not used it under mountain line i will say well so. I, i've got and i may have talked about this in the show before but i've got now when i travel i bring in an airport express i did buy the new one they have the new one out that looks like an apple tv but it's white yeah it's and nice isn't it yeah I, I, i'm traveling with that and the apple tv anytime i travel now that i present and the reason is it's a super easy solution. Go into a room. Uh, I've created a password you know, network on the Airport Express. I plug it into a wall anywhere in the room. And then I plug the Apple TV in and put the HDMI into the projector in the room. And now I've got a way to wirelessly broadcast from my Mac or my iPad to the screen. And I'm getting you know, much more comfortable now presenting just with the iPad walking around the room. And it's, you know, it, it cost me 200 bucks. Hey, unrelated, did you get one of those um, VGA adapters for your Apple TV? They're about 50 or 60 bucks. I did not. Okay, because I, I have run into some older projectors do not have an HDMI input. And so that becomes problematic with the Apple TV. But there's an, there's an adapter that you can buy for 50 or 60 bucks depending on where you get it, that will, um, the, I mean, it seems very backwards, but it will, it will plug into the HDMI port of your Apple TV and give you a VGA input to it, or I'm sorry, a VGA output so that the Apple TV will become more compatible with, with older projectors that maybe only support VGA. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, that's true for the older projectors. They don't have HDMI, but anything being made now does. So you'd want to check with the room before you get on the plane <laughs> because you may need that. Or, you know, you could also in a pinch using that airport express, you could plug your Mac into the VGA and then use something like reflections to, right. Right. to broadcast your Mac. And then it's a little kind of awkward, but that would work too. Well, it's assuming you have your Mac with you. Yeah. That makes your Mac a very expensive VGA adapter. Yeah, it does. <laughs> it's a good way to put it, Katie. <laughs> anyway, I got an email from someone, uh, and I Marcus. Marcus wrote in about the um, the iBooks, and when we talked about the thing Brett and I did, and he's saying, "I don't understand why you're doing everything in iBooks, author. Why don't you just make a simple ebook? Because a simple ebook uh, can be viewed on an iPhone. It can go on other EPUB capable systems. You know, there's other there's other tablets out there." Um, you can sell it in other online stores. Um, and I, I just, I prefer the iBooks author format. I mean, the people who are interested in the stuff I'm writing about are generally iPad people, not Android people anyway. So I'm fortunate in that regard. And there's just nothing like iBooks author. I mean, the, if you look at the paperless book, I, maybe because the tips book was a lot of screencasts and words, it wasn't as interactive as the paperless book was. But if you look at the paperless book, I'm not aware of anything else I could have done it on other than the iBooks author. I, I've been very happy with it. And and so uh, from what I understand in his email, I mean, my first thought was, oh my gosh, how could you have done your screencast in EPUB? But but he's saying you can embed screencast in the no, EPUB. No, you can. I was working with it 
right up until the time Apple announced iBooks author in what was it, February. So, you know, I was I was on that road and it is possible to do those things. It takes a little bit of finagling and you know, whether or not you get consistent results is a whole nother story. I mean you might get it to work on one device, but on another it doesn't render right and you know, with the iBooks author, you have absolute c- control when you've got it in landscape mode. It's exactly as the author intended it. And when you put it in portrait mode, it doesn't look bad either. Um, but yeah, I, I have no interest in that stuff. But that does kind of raise a bigger question. We occasionally get questions in here about, you know, the workflows for iBooks author. And I've been hesitant to do a show on it because it seems to me like such a niche thing that I don't think anybody would be interested in it. And I, I'm interested in feedback from the audience. So if you guys really want it, we'll do a show on that stuff. But uh, I, I want to hear back from people before I spend an hour and a half talking about it to nobody. Well, let's let's talk about where they can send that feedback to. All right. That's a good idea. So go ahead and send it to feedback at MacPowerUsers.com. That's an email that comes to both Katie and I. Yeah, or if you have any other comments about the show. Uh, you can also find links to everything we talked about, and I think there'll be quite a few links in this episode. You've got your work cut out for you, David. Um, over on our website at MacPowerUsers.com or at 5x5.tv slash MPU. Yeah, you can also send us a Twitter note to at MacPowerUsers, and Katie is at Katie Floyd, and I'm at Max Sparky. Yeah, and David and I are both on app.net now, although the show is not. Uh, and, yeah. and we actually got a lot of comments and a lot of feedback about this show. I, I threw out a note on Twitter saying, hey, what are your best ideas to speed up your Mac? And a lot of things we talked about on the show came from Twitter. So thank you to everybody who contributed. Yeah. And uh, thanks to our sponsors for today's show, uh, Gazelle, Omni Group, and 1Password. All right. Well, that's going to wrap us up for now. And we'll talk to you later. 